It's a pleasure to welcome you here with us this morning. We are glad that you've chosen to worship with us. We hope you'll take your Bibles and you'll open to Isaiah chapter 66. This morning we'll be in Isaiah chapter 66. Uh, This summer I've just been preaching sermons that have been um, about texts that have been challenging to me and texts that have encouraged me as far as worship and my relationship to Jesus. And it just so happens that we've been in Isaiah the last few weeks as I've been Uh, reading and looking at Isaiah for the last few months. And so today I'm going to be in the last chapter of Isaiah. Um, We've preached Isaiah 1 on false worship, Isaiah chapter 6 on seeing ourselves in light of what God is doing, and now we're going to be at the very end of the book of Isaiah in verses 1 through 4. And my sermon title this morning is, To Whom Does God Look? The question of what does God look for in our worship and in our relationship to Him? Now, as I begin, I want to give you uh, uh, two things that we have to look for in our Bibles that are apparent, um, but I want to give you some theological language to go with them, okay? So there are two incredible, yet seemingly contradictory pillars of Christian thought and theology. So there are two things upon which our Christian faith is built that are seeming contradictions, but these are what make, this is what makes Christianity what it is. So the first is, on the one hand, the, the one pillar is God's transcendence. Okay, So that's one pillar of Christian theology and thought. And on the other is the pillar of God's eminence. Now, transcendence means literally to climb over or to rise above. So when we talk about the transcendence of God, what we're talking about is how high and exalted God is and how altogether separate He is from His creation. God is so transcendent and different and above us that He is inapproachable, unapproachable in His holiness and splendor. He is glorious and terrifying and completely distinct without equal without rival, and without comparison. He is completely other. Now at this point, there are other worldviews and other religions in our world that would agree with that pillar. They would agree, like Muslims, for example, believe that Allah is transcendent above all. But that brings us to the second pillar, which is the pillar that makes Christianity distinct. And that is the pillar of God's eminence. God's eminence means that God draws near to his people. Now that is not found in other worldviews. Though we cannot climb to reach God because of his transcendence, we can never get to him on our own. God has chosen to condescend to us. Now, he has chosen to draw near and dwell among his people. So the God of the Bible, from beginning to end, is both transcendent and distant and far away and above all, and yet He has chosen to come near to His people. In fact, that's the whole point of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, that you will be my people, and I will be your God, and I will do what is necessary for our relationship to be together so that we can enjoy and delight in one another for eternity. In fact... Um, uh, In fact, this is the essential truth behind the incarnation of Jesus. This is what Muslims absolutely would not agree with. They would say God has no son, and he cannot do what Jesus has done. And that is the truth behind the incarnation, that God has drawn near to his people 
becomes a man and dwells among us to rescue us and save us. Now, as I've said, both of those pillars, God's transcendence and His eminence, are incredibly vivid throughout the Bible, but they are crystal clear in the book of Isaiah, as we're going to see this this morning. This is what makes Isaiah, in my opinion, one of the most mind-blowing books of the Bible. It's also the Old Testament book that, that paints a picture of the gospel and our future hope most clearly. No other Old Testament book points so clearly to Jesus as the coming Messiah, who will forgive our sins, give us eternal life, welcome even the Gentiles and the nations in among God's people. Isaiah also prophesies that the curse will be removed that was given in the garden and that the Messiah will bring with him a new heavens and a new earth. All of that's found in the book of Isaiah. But now as we get to the end of the book of Isaiah, I want to give you the context of what's going to be addressed this morning. Here in Isaiah 66, God's people are struggling under God's judgment. They're wondering why God hasn't acted to save them as the Babylonians come in to basically wipe the nation of Israel off the earth. And they're asking big questions about God. Where is He? What's going on? Why hasn't He saved us? Um, has, he, has He left us and forsaken us? Is He not going to keep His promises? Why hasn't He come to rescue us like He did in Egypt? And this question, this, these questions are answered in Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 4. So let's read them together, listen to the word of the Lord, and then we will break it apart. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now I'm going to stop there even though we'll look at verses 3 and 4 as we go through the text in just a minute. So I want to, look, I want to answer four questions this morning from verses 1 and 2 even though we will look at verses 3 and 4. So here are the four questions that, uh, that God wants to make sure we know the answer to. Um, especially Old Testament Israel, but even us today. Here's the first question. Who God is? Who God is? If you look there at verses 1 and 2, the question behind this that is coming from, the, from Israel is, well, who is God? If God has promised to rescue us like He did as we came out of Egypt, if God is uh, the one who has instituted our, our, our nation, as our people as a nation, and has given us this land, and has given us kings, and has given us temple worship, and has made a covenant with us, and given us God's commandments, well, who is He now if we are facing destruction? Who is God, and where has He gone? Well, to this, God answers very clearly that He is on His throne... And he is ruling over the entire universe. God reminds us here that heaven is his throne. He is the God who rules on his throne. And the earth is his footstool. Now God has driven this point home really well. God, God really makes this his, the whole focus of Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah 40, the people are wondering, who is God? Where is God? Why has he not done this? And this is what he says back in Isaiah 40. He just, God describes himself. He says, look, he says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has marked off the heavens with a span? That's the distance from your tip of your finger to the tip of your little finger to the tip of your thumb. 
Who has marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales in a balance? That's God. That's God saying, I'm the one who's done all these things. This is me. I'm the creator of all the ends of the earth. I rule over all things. He says, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? And what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught God the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And the answer to those questions are, no one. There is no one else who's done these things. There's no one who's instructed God. No one can tell him wisdom. No one can explain to him justice. God alone rules and reigns over the universe. And then God says this, because all of Israel was worried about Babylon, worried about them coming in and destroying them, and if they were actually stronger than God. And God says this, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and they're accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust, and Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. And you go, well, at least the nations are like dust. You know, at least there's a little dust. At least they have a drop from a bucket. They're at least something, right? And then just when you think you have a little bit of hope, God says this in verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They, they are accounted to him as less than nothing in emptiness. God says, I'm the one who's ruling. There's not a king on this earth that can thwart my purposes or plans. I am absolutely in charge. And Babylon is doing my bidding. They are not acting on their own. And then God says this in verse 25, just to press the point even further home. He says, to whom then will you compare me? I'm not like Baal or Molech or Chemosh or any of these other gods. Whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, speaking of the stars, the sun, and the moon. He says, he brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And then he says this, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? So they're complaining, God doesn't see, God doesn't know, God doesn't rule. And then God says this, have you not known, and have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God isn't weary. He's not disappeared. He's not taken a, leap, a leave of absence. He's not gone on sabbatical. He is doing his bidding. Which brings me to the second question. Well, that's who God is. He's the, the great king on his throne, ruling over the cosmos. And the question is, well, where then is God? And the answer is, he's filling the cosmos with his presence. He's reminding us of the truth that he cannot be contained or limited to one people, one place, or one building. Right? That's what he's saying to them. He says, I, I'm, thus says the Lord, I, I'm the ruler of heaven and earth. Heaven is my throne, that's where I'm sitting. Earth is my footstool. You cannot contain me. Where is the house then that you would build that would contain me? And so... Um, God, this is a reminder to Israel of God's absolute transcendence, His absolute glory and power. The same problem seems to be behind what's going on in Psalm 115. In Psalm 115, it says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and faithfulness. And then he asks a question, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? 
So apparently that was the claim. Well, well, Babylon's coming in to destroy you. Your God must be useless or worthless or weak or inept or uncaring. And so your God is gone. Where is your God? He must be taking a nap. That was the claim against the people of Israel. You're putting your hope in God, but he's useless. And then verse 3 of Psalm 115 says this, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So the point to them was, just because you're going through a difficult time, which God had already told them they would go through, don't pretend for a second that God's not ruling on his throne because he's doing what pleases him. And it pleases him to send you into captivity because of your sin. And that's what's going on here. And by the way, I'll just say that Isaiah got a glimpse of this truth of God ruling over all things back, in, back last week in Isaiah 6 when he saw the vision of God filling the temple. If you remember, in, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and the place filled with smoke. And then I saw seraphim flying around with two wings, they, with six wings they flew, with two they covered their eyes, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew around. And they were crying out to one another all the time, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Not just the Lord God of Israel, this is the Lord of all creation. The whole earth is full of His glory. Not just those that are in Israel. God is the cosmic, universal God of all creation, not just of one people, place, or building. And so, um, that's what he's saying. As R.C. Sproul famously said, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. So God is saying in all of this, who is God? I'm the king on my throne, ruling over all things. Where is He? Exactly where he belongs, ruling over all things. And so the things that are happening are according to his purposes. Well, then let's look at the next question. The next question then that comes is, what does God want? Because apparently in Israel, what the people of Israel thought was God wanted his temple and wanted to protect his temple as the Babylonians came in and they were going to destroy it and ransack Israel. And so the emblem of Israel's national identity and of their relationship with God was going to be destroyed. And so, um, God is saying here, he does not want a temple. Look what he says. This is very funny language, if you ask me. He says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? I rule all things. And you think if you stack up some pretty rocks on top of one another, that, 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 I'm, that, that that's what's most important? And look what God says. Secondly, he says, and by the way, all the rocks that you would use... I made them. You know, so you can stack up pretty rocks, but at the end of the day, I made the rocks. And so anything you build for me, um, anything you build for me is made with stuff that I've made. And so the point here, the question is, if God doesn't want a temple, why not? Why doesn't God want to protect his temple here? And why is he allowing, the, why is he allowing um, Babylon to come in to destroy it? But here's the answer. The temple was never bad in and of itself. It was actually pleased the Lord to build it. Solomon did what the Lord wanted him to do. But the temple was just what it is, a building. An earthly temple cannot contain the king of all the universe. And here's the point. There are admonitions and warnings everywhere in the Bible about viewing or using the temple wrongly. 
which seems to be what's going on here in Isaiah. For example, Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple, and this is very strange, right? Solomon builds this glorious temple, and then he prays, and this is what he says. But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this house I have built. So even Solomon knew that even though I'm doing this, this, the point of the temple isn't to contain the king of all the universe into one place. God cannot be contained. And Paul says the same thing in Acts 7 uh, to the pagans who are worshiping idols on Mars Hill. He says that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives life to all man, uh, since he gives him, sorry, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So what's happening is the Jewish people are viewing the temple wrongly and they're using the temple wrongly. And God is making a point here that this is not what he wants. And let me press the point home a little further. The point is that God doesn't need us or a temple. He doesn't need anything. The temple services were never to Never to give to God anything he did not already own or never to give or never to accomplish something he never intended for it to accomplish. Here are three truths behind that. Um, this brings us to the well let me just this brings us to the problem facing Israel. Um, here, here are the three problems. First, the temple does not equal God's presence or blessing. That doesn't equal that. Just God is saying, just because the Babylonians destroy the temple. That does not mean any of my promises are not all my, that, that I've not kept all of my promises or that I will still not be, keep my covenant with you. You will be my people and I will be your God, but it's not going to be through this. It's going to be through something else. And so Israel needed to learn that. Second, the temple will not save anyone from God's judgment for sin. They thought that just because they had the temple, that meant that God would never allow them to be destroyed. That the, the temple itself meant that God would absolutely have to save them from their enemies. It would forgive them of their sin, but that was never what it was for. And by the way, if the temple meant that God would save them, the, the, then the Babylonians wouldn't be knocking on the door. So obviously that's not what the temple meant. The temple was never meant that, uh, the, the temple never meant um, that it, it would save them from God's judgment for sin. And secondly, thirdly, um, having a temple, and I think this is the main point, having a temple but worshiping in a way that dishonored and disobeys the Lord would only bring more judgment. God didn't want His people to, to, to worship in any of those ways. That's what verses 3 and 4 are about. So let's look at verses 3 and 4 about how they were using the right things at the temple, but their hearts were not right. Look what it says there. This is very hard language. He says, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like the one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like the one who blesses an idol. Um, these have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I will also choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. 
So here's what's going on behind the scenes. Israel is wondering, where is God? We're about to be destroyed. God's not with us. God is left. He is, he's asleep or gone away. So let's start adding other things to our worship. Maybe we do need to call on these other gods. Maybe we need to call on the gods of Assyria or the gods of Egypt. Maybe they'll come and help us. Maybe God is only so localized that we need more gods to help us in this fight. And God says, if you're adding those things to temple worship, or you're doing things like this and bringing other things into worship that I did not prescribe, then you're going to invite further judgment. Right? And by the way, none of these offerings here are the wrong offerings. Oxes were supposed to be brought. Lambs were supposed to be brought. Incense was supposed to be burned. But the problem is, God says, when you offer this in such a way in which you dishonors me and you do your own thing, you add to what I've said, you're disobeying. And God says, just like you've chosen to do this, I'm going to choose to judge what's going on. So, that's the issue. God has prescribed worship to include certain things, but God has not prescribed a worship that is devoid of humility, dependence, and obedience. That's the hallmark of worship. Humility, dependence, and obedience. So if you bring the right offering with the wrong motive, then you're not worshiping and honoring God. You cannot serve God by disobeying Him. So that's not what God wants. God doesn't want a temple this way that, that has these kinds of things. What does God want? Look at the answer in verse four. Look at the answer in verses two and three. God wants those who humbly tremble at His word. That's what He says. I'm not looking at the temple. I'm not looking at all these things that are going on there. He says, to this one I will look. To the one who is humble, contrite, and who trembles at my word. He is the God who looks to the lowly and draws near to them. In fact, God has already made all of the points of verses 1 and 2 back in Isaiah 57. So just flip back to Isaiah 57. Flip back. Because Isaiah 66 is, re is repetition. This is repetition of Isaiah 57, verses 15 and 16. Look at what God tells them there. He says, for thus says the Lord, so, sorry, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place. That's God's transcendence. I dwell in the high and holy place, completely separate and apart. But then notice God's eminence. And also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. So we see God driving home those truths of what he's like. He's transcendently above all others and eminently near to the contrite and holy that's his point. So look there at verse 2, and let's just kind of ask the question, what is, what is God asking of us here? He says, first, I look to those that are humble. This is humility. Humility is the rightful recognition of who God is and who we are in light of Him. It's knowing and understanding our place in light of God's greatness, glory, goodness, and grace. It's the complete opposite of pride and self-determination and self-exaltation that you see in verses 3 and 4 where they say, I'm choosing what I want to do, I'm choosing how I want to do it, I'm disregarding all of God's word, and I'm going to do what I want. 
God says, that's not who I'm looking for. I'm looking to those who recognize who I am and who they are in humble dependence. And then God says, those that are contrite in spirit. Contrite throughout Scripture doesn't mean simply lowly or despondent. It means those who are dependent and who patiently wait on divine help. So humility and contriteness go together. Humility recognizes God and God as God is God. Contriteness says, God, only you can act here. I must patiently wait on your help. God, we are in a bad spot, but I'm going to wait on your promises. God, there's not a thing I can do about Babylon coming or the struggles I'm facing. But in contriteness, I, I lower myself before you and I receive and wait on your help. By the way, this is absolutely what's behind what's going on in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, when David has sinned against God because of Bathsheba, and he has sinned grievously against the Lord. Listen to what David says in Psalm 51. He says, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. He says, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. So David said, yeah, I could go to the temple. I could offer an ox. I could offer a lamb. I could do all of those things. But those things don't get to the heart of my problem. The heart of my problem is the problem of my heart. David goes on to say, these are the sacrifices of God. A broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So the contrite are those who recognize their dependence upon God for His mercy, grace, compassion, and care. That's what Israel didn't recognize. They thought they could manipulate God by the temple, manipulate God by their syncretistic worship, uh, worship practices, or they could just manipulate God because they had, they had a, they, they were, we were, we're, we're going to do it because we have a, a way of doing that through our sacrificial system. And God says, that's not who I look to. I'm not looking at people who are trying to game the system. I'm looking to those who are humble, those who are contrite, and those who tremble at my word. They tremble at my word. This is the contrast to those that we just saw in verses 3 and 4. Those who stubbornly refuse to hear God's word and obey it. They were all crying out in verses 3 and 4 that God's disappeared. God's gone. He's not speaking to us. God doesn't talk to us anymore. Look what it says there in verse... Look at what it says there at the end of verse 4. He says, when I called, no one answered. That's the problem. The problem wasn't that God was silent. The problem was a stubborn refusal to hear the word of the Lord. And he says, when I spoke, they did not listen. No, instead, they did what was evil in my eyes, meaning they broke my law intentionally, and they chose that in which I did not delight. So those who these were those who stubbornly refused to hear God's word and obey it. Those who were more interested in making their own laws than in, than in humbly submitting themselves to God's. Listen, this is the problem. Y'all heard me say this over and over again. The problem with sin isn't just that we break God's commandments. That's bad enough. When God says, God says something and we disobey, that's bad enough. The heart behind sin isn't just law-breaking, it's law-making. It's saying, God, you are not God. I am God. I make the laws. You don't make the laws. I'm the God of my life. You have no say. And God says, that's why the one to, the one to whom I look are those who hear my word for what it is. They tremble at my word. 
So the last thing I want to say as I conclude, and I have just three minutes left, what does it mean to tremble at God's word? God says, to this, but to this one, I, this, but this is the one to whom I will look. The one who is humble, the one who is contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. So what does it mean to tremble at God's word? I want to give you six quick practical applications. So you can ask yourself, do I tremble at God's word? Do I actually tremble at God's word? Well, here's what it means to tremble at God's word from a biblical perspective. Number one, to tremble at God's word, you have to receive it for what it is. You have to receive it for what it is. This is the word of the king of the universe, the Lord of all lords, the sovereign ruler of all that is or ever will be. So when God speaks, there is no one else or nothing else that matters. doesn't matter what any president says, what any pope says, what any preacher says, what anybody else says. What matters is what God says. His word will remain forever. Not a jot or tittle will pass away. That's what Paul says to the Thessalonians. He says, we thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. That's why we're here. We're here because this really is God's word. It's not Jacob's word. It's God's word. Receive it for what it is. Secondly, if you're going to tremble at God's word, you have to long for it and desire it. That means you have to crave it and desire it and want it. Uh, 1 Peter 2, 2 says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, that by it you may grow up into salvation. You have to long for God's word. You have to crave it and say, Lord, speak, your servant is listening, as Samuel did when God called him. Third, you have to be dependent upon it and live by it. This is part of being humble and contrite, that you are dependent upon God's word and you live by it. If you remember Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness and Satan, he was hungry and Satan said, turn the stones into bread. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Demonstrating that we don't just need physical bread, we need spiritual bread. If you're going to live spiritually, then you need to come hungry, desiring it, to, and you need to live upon God's word. Allow it to nourish your soul. Don't starve yourself spiritually. Fourth, to tremble at God's word, you have to fill your mind with it and meditate upon it. The Psalms are filled with meditations upon God's word where David says, I meditate upon your word day and night, that I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against God. You have to fill your mind with God's word if you're going to tremble at it because you have to know it. How can you tremble upon that which you do not know? Fifth, if you're going to be tremble at God's word, then you have to know that you need to be transformed by it. That the purpose of drawing near to God's word is for, it, for the word of God to have its work and its way in your life to conform you more to the image of Jesus. Jesus prayed for all of his disciples in John 17 and he said, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. Meaning that the path by which we are sanctified and made holy and conformed to the image of Christ is by us coming into contact with God's word that is alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and it can divide us in part. Divide us in half. Let God's word have its way. And then sixth and finally, if you're going to tremble at God's word, then you need to see the glory of Jesus in it. All of God's word, all of Isaiah, all of God's word points to the truth that Jesus has condescended. He has came to rescue his people and that all of God's word is about Jesus. 
So you can't tremble at God's word without trembling before the Lamb of God who gave himself up, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one for whom all praise is due. I'll remind you of what, Jesus, of what John says in John 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. In Him was life, and life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you're going to tremble at God's Word, then you have to tremble before Jesus. And as believers, we've done that as we've come to Jesus in repentance and faith, recognizing our need of Jesus because we recognize God's transcendent holiness. And we recognize the gulf that, that, is, that, the gulf that separates us by our sin. And we recognize that Jesus is the one who takes the transcendent holiness of God and he represents the nearness of God and he brings us together. That he died, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That is the point. So who are those that God draws near to? He draws near to those, he draws near to those who are humble, contrite, and who tremble at his word. And those he's drawn near to most clearly and most, I'm losing a word here. But it's those who've come to Jesus. Because now he dwells in us by his spirit. We've been united to him by faith. And we belong to him forever. So my point to you this morning is if you don't know Jesus. There is no way to come to the transcendent God of the universe except through him. You have to come in humility. Come in repentance. Lay down your life and put your faith in Jesus. If you're a Christian... And I just have to ask you, have you gotten much too familiar with God such that you no longer recognize his transcendence and you don't, quit, you don't quake and tremble before his word? If so, the path to revival is the path of repentance. Heeding God's word, hearing God's word, and falling before him in dependence. And then finally, this morning, if you're looking for a church home, we want to invite you to be a part of ours where we will follow Jesus and his word. That is our desire. His word will reign supreme over us as long as I'm pastor or I'll have to leave because Jesus is Lord of all. Would you pray with me? Father, bless your word. I pray, Father, that we've heard it this morning for what it really is, the word of God. And Father, as we receive it, that we would respond not in rebellion, not in, um, not in refusal, but in humble submission to you as God ruling over us. We pray this in Jesus' name.